Hello and welcome to a special Noble Hearts Forum edition of Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and I am pleased and honored, as always, to be your host and today as your moderator uh, for a show on what uh, our topic of the day is going to be, social insurance, America's social insurance programs, to be specific. Is the safety net still safe? Now, for regular listeners, you know we did a Noble Hearts Forum on Israel and Gaza, I guess it was about a month ago, January 25th, and it was by far the most listened to and the most debated podcast we've ever produced, bar none. When looking back at the seven years and more than 800 podcasts that we've already produced and will continue to produce. A forum on social insurance may not sound as compelling or sexy as one on Israel and Gaza, but I'm confident that it's no less important and from a very practical American perspective, arguably even more important than what's happening in the Middle East right now. I'm sure I'll get comments on that. But, but before we get into today's topic and introduce our panelists, um, I have an announcement. We learned yesterday that we lost one of our classmates, Dr. Vincent Mosca, Vinny, Vinny Mosca. Vinny had been a Noble Hearts Forum panelist just about two years ago on a forum entitled America's China Syndrome. And I'd like to read the introduction that I gave him at that time. Vincent Mosco received his PhD from Harvard and is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Queen's University of Canada, where he held the Canada Research Chair in Communications and Society. He's also Distinguished Professor of Communication at the New Media Center, Fudan University in Shanghai. For nearly 50 years, Dr. Mosco has written about media, new technology, and critical theory. He is the author or editor of 26 books, including most notably, The Digital Sublime and the Political Economy of Communication. His most recent books form a trilogy on new developments in communication and information technology and include an analysis of China's role in the digital world. Now, among his numerous awards and honors, Dr. Mosco was recently recognized by the International Communication Association with the C. Edwin Baker Award for his outstanding scholarly contributions to research on media, markets, and democracy. Uh, Vinny is survived by his lifetime partner, Catherine, his children and grandchildren, and I'm personally honored to have been able to reconnect with him and all my classmates um, after a hiatus of more than 50 years. He was a great guy. He was a hell of a tough basketball player, and by every measure, did very well. But more than that, Vinny did a lot of good and was loved by a lot of people, and the world was a better place for him him having been in it. Rest in peace, my friend. Okay, uh, we move on to current panelists, uh, and they are familiar ones. At least the first two I will mention are, have been here with us on a number of occasions. Bill Mulligan is Professor Emeritus at Murray State University. He has taught U.S. and world history courses in, and uh, U.S. military history for the last 20 years. He's the author of several books and dozens of scholarly articles and presentations. He was a Fulbright scholar in Ireland 
and has just received a Hibernian Research Award from the Kushwa Center at the University of Notre Dame to support his research on the Irish diaspora. John Cugini uh, received his BA in philosophy and then worked for the US Army for seven years as a computer programmer and instructor, that not being enough in his spare time, earned an MS in computer science at the University of Iowa. He went on to work for the National Bureau of Standards for 29 years with specialties in the areas of programming languages, graphics and visualization, and voting systems. And, and I add this not by way of, 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 of singling John out, but because I think it's an important element. John has been a lifelong traditional Republican, what would appear to be a dying breed, but an altogether necessary one if we're to have a vibrant and surviving democracy going forward. And that brings us to Bill Arnone. Now, Bill has been a Noble Hearts Forum panelist on two, or maybe is it three prior, I'll have to check on that, I'm not sure, I think at least two, I know that. He is a founding board member, former chair of the board of directors and current chief executive officer, although he's recently announced that he'll be retiring in June, of the National Academy of Social Insurance. For those of you who may not be familiar, the Academy is home to about 1,000 of the nation's leaders and experts in the interdisciplinary field of social insurance, which includes Social Security, Medicare, unemployment insurance, workers' comp, and increasingly these days, paid family leave programs, as well as several other programs. Before the Academy, Bill had a 15-year career as a partner at Ernst & Young, and before that, a principal and the National Director of Financial and Retirement Planning Services for Buck Consultants. He is your standard Regian underachiever, as are all our panelists. But that earns you no special treatment on a Noble Hearts Forum. Now. Bill has always been about as publicly even-handed in his political comments as I can imagine anyone in his position being. And again, when you're dealing with something as vulnerable to politics as social insurance, you don't go out of your way to incur the wrath of politicians of any stripe. But I'm not bound, and this forum is not bound by any particular rules of political nicety. Now, I recall during the presidency of George Bush, Bush 43, there was this concerted effort supported by Republicans and neocons, not Democrats, to change the fundamental character of Social Security. As I recall, rather than just pay Americans their monthly checks, which most Americans use to pay for their critical basics like housing, food, uncovered medical expenses, no, Mr. Bush and the people who influenced him decided that at least part of that money should be deposited into investment accounts set up in the name of every individual receiving Social Security, and that Americans would then have the right, would be encouraged to invest their money any way they liked, and in particular, they should have the right to put it into the hands of large brokerage firms who would invest the money for them 
and charge them fees they wouldn't understand and maybe even lose some or all of it if the market nosedived, which it did right around the time all this was being proposed. In essence, Bush 43 and his associates wanted to discourage Americans from using just, from just using their money to just pay their bills, which had been the whole idea behind Social Security from the get-go, and instead become instant, sophisticated investors who could deal with the likes of uh, fidelity and all manner of preferred money managers and play the markets the way the big guys did. That would work out fine, right? No one would really get hurt. It wouldn't put all their social security benefits at risk. And, and if recipients lost a few dollars here and there, well, you know, with investment comes risk. Now, I've often thought of what I considered that unbridled attempt to redistribute billions out of the hands of normal Americans and into the hands of the big boys. I thought of that as the low point of, and maybe the biggest risk to, social security in my lifetime. That's what I thought. And fortunately, from my perspective, the worst never happened. But I'm also hearing that Social Security is once again at serious risk of being attacked by the same forces that tried to privatize it a few years back. Could any current risk to Social Security and social insurance programs be as bad as what Bush 43 and his pals tried to pull off? Or, or am I simply overreacting to the image I see through the warped lens of the blather-much, do-nothing 118th Congress? Bill Arnone, have I correctly characterized what Bush 43 and his associates attempted to do? And more than that, have average Americans taken their collective eye <laughs> off of Social Security and social insurance generally for just a little bit too long? So those are two questions. Uh, yeah, Rich. they are. <laughs> the answer to both, I think, is yes. Um, it's good to, to be with you and my uh, classmates from our great years at Regis. Um, what... Uh, Bush did try to do, and you got to give him credit for his courage, was an attempt to transform Social Security uh, from what's called a defined benefit plan, where there's a formula that tells you what you're going to get uh, when you meet the eligibility criteria, into what's more like what's called a defined contribution plan, where all you know is what's going in, and it's up to you to invest it right so that you can have a benefit that comes out and helps to support your retirement. He did it on a partial basis. Uh, about a third of the contributions would be diverted into these accounts. And he picked a bad time because, as you mentioned, as he was going around the country explaining it, the stock market was diving, which, by the way, is not a bad time to go into the market. <laughs> so, well, people said, now oh, that you bring well, it up. <laughs> yeah, when people reacted, what terrible time actually was, was not bad time. But the more he went around the country, he barnstormed all around the country. Yeah. The more he talked about it, the less support he had for it. Um, so I think he just... Um, couldn't uh, overcome built-in resistance to any fundamental change in uh, Social Security. Um, today, the climate is different in that no one is talking about this word privatization, which is word, the word that uh, the Bush approach was labeled. Uh, there's a more serious threat, and that is the um, crisis that Social Security faces in the foreseeable future in its funding. 
And that has brought out the same forces that never liked it. Now they see an opportunity to say, you see, it's not sustainable. That's the word that is most often used. Or even worse, they say it's going bankrupt, which uh, is a false description of its financial condition. But the American people have been lulled into thinking that um, all is fine. And every year, Social Security trustees come out with a report, and the report for the past 25 years has said uh, the long-range funding is at risk. And the longer you wait, the harder the solution is. So I think this program is well-timed because it probably, and I, I can't say for certain, I would think Social Security will be an issue in the presidential campaign, uh, although uh, Trump, for all of his shortcomings, was smart enough to say, I will never cut Social Security or Medicare. And uh, in fact, his first term, he did not attempt to do that. So um, timing is everything. And I think this is a time when the American people are going to be refocused on uh, Social Security as one of the social insurance programs that form a fabric of uh, support in our country. Well, from what you just said, um, I, I, I think I've been walked back slightly on my original, I think. Uh, you seem to not feel that the whole notion that Bush and Associates basically had back then was necessarily a bad or horrible thing. Had it been done correctly, it could have been a, a good thing. Is there any possibility that something like that could be done today and done effectively? Not quite the way Bush attempted it. He made the mistake, I think, of saying, let's carve out of Social Security a certain percentage of payroll contributions, and that would come at the expense of your Social Security benefit. I think a more viable alternative is to add on to Social Security a savings component that is independent of your Social Security benefit. Bill Clinton tried to do that, by the way, and didn't get very far either because said people thought that was the, the camel's nose under the tent, that once you uh, create a defined contribution add-on, it could be transformed into a defined contribution carve-out, and it would hurt Social Security. But there's a, there could be an appetite for that at some point. I think the bigger argument is going to be, and some uh, Democrats uh, will say the same thing, should wealthy people get Social Security? Should we not put into it what's called a means test? Uh, and that would uh, make uh, people whose incomes are over a certain amount not eligible for Social Security. That is the more likely uh, discourse we're going to be hearing, I think, as Social Security is debated. If it's, if it's um, at risk financially, let's not waste funds on people who don't need a Social Security benefit. John, does having John, could you, does it does it make uh, does it make sense to just go right in and and begin developing means testing and and mm -hmm. culling out people or or maybe phasing out the people who are receiving it that are over a certain threshold of income? Yeah, you, you can make that argument. Let me let me take one minute to sort of go back and defend the honor of, of George. <laughs> of, of George I, I, I think I better put on a little armor here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I don't I, I don't think we want to devote. <laughs> the show to a 2005 proposal, but what he, what he was proposing was an IRA. We have IRAs. People take a certain amount of money, and it's it's, it's after before tax income or after tax income, depending on your element. And you you give it to Vanguard, and they charge you a third of a percent. You know, if you have any brains, and they have programs. You know, if you don't want to actively invest, they have Target 2040, Target 2048. You say this is the year I think I'll need the money. 
Build now. Can you waste your own money? Yes. Can you can you piss it away? And when you turn and and the biggest difference I think is when you hit retirement age, Social Security is an annuity. You get so much per year, and then you die, yeah. and you don't get yeah. any more. With an IRA, you have a giant chunk of money. You could turn that into an annuity, but also you could take it out as you please, required minimum distribution. And if there's some left over, your kids can get it. So I see that as a trade-off between staunch Republican self-reliance and control of my own money, and I don't tell me what to do, I know what I'm doing, versus a more paternalistic, perhaps justifiably so. You guys are gonna screw it up, you, you, know, you moron proles. We'll take your money. We'll we'll give you an annuity at, at the end of your life, so you don't starve to death, and you won't have to come crying back to us after you you know you bought a Maserati and now you have no money left. So I think those are you know. But I mean, what Bush was doing, like I say, it's it's you know we have IRAs, and no one seems to think that they're well. You may, but most people don't think they're the work of the devil. So it's I, I but it's I, I the message I got, and I'm I'm wondering, Bill Mulligan, if you got the same message that back in those days was that it was really almost automatically going into brokerage type accounts the ira picture oh. is not one that was it, it might have been it might have been a matter of communication bill I, I don't i don't remember it as being that much that exactly that way no i think it was more of a options and i think yes you know as a historian we have to go back remember we're going forward into a very different world than when Social Security was created. When Social Security 30s, was yeah. created, the population was growing. There were, there were lots of new people coming into the workforce. We now have one of the smallest, like 18 years, 19 years and down, the population of is going to decrease. It's already becoming a problem for colleges and universities in terms of recruiting students. Social Security was premised upon the idea that, A, the average person died at 60. Life expectancy was 65. Yeah. Well, it ain't 65 anymore, thank God. Yeah. And <laughs> current and company there included. there's going to be more people working than there were collecting. Yeah. And we are now in a new world. And so we have to try to things. I think what we have to balance is, yes, promises were made and people made plans based on those promises. And we certainly don't want senior citizens to, to you know, have a, a seriously diminished quality of life. We want to provide a certain basic benefit. How we do that, I think, really needs to be discussed with almost no limits. You know, I mean, they always refer to it as the third rail in American politics. Well, we better turn off the power in the third rail because we got to, you know, should the, should the cap be taken off? You stop paying at what one hundred seventy-six thousand dollars now. Yeah. Is that reasonable in the current economic structure in terms of what salary structure are? Should there be no limit? Should the limit be higher? Um, retirement age. Well, that's okay for people like us. I I could work. I worked pretty much full time until I was 70, well, 70, 71. But if you're a factory worker, that's yeah. not reasonable. You know, if you yeah. have a physical yeah. job physically demanding job. So, you know, we ha really have to have a conversation, you know, as a society, we want our citizens, senior citizens to have a dignified uh, life. We want them to not, you know, be running GoFundMe every, every time they turn around, but we have to value what, what can we afford? And, um, you know, we're the wealthy, we're a very wealthy country. We can afford a lot. 
but we still, I think, have to have that discussion. But it's a different environment. We can't look, as a historian, we really can't look back at the, why it was set up because all the, all the basic parameters are completely different. Well, then, then, but there's two things here. There's, are we capable of having the discussion and what should the discussion be specifically, very specifically about? I mean, I, A, John, can we have that discussion right now? Are we, are, are, do we have, is there somewhere within the mental uh, sphere that, that, or the, the political sphere that is occupied by the current occupants uh, of the House and the Senate and the White House, is there a way to at least even initiate that conversation in a meaningful way, or is everything just too mired in politics right now to even begin? I, I think it's it's hard. I mean, I'm, I'm doing anecdotal data here, which you know is worth exactly. But I, you know, I have several relatives who who live on live on Social Security, yeah. and and the first thing they ask about is he going to cut Social Security? Just they are. You know, now they're they're the older set, so of course you would expect them to be pretty pretty adamant. I mean, this is their life, and they don't want to hear anything. Um, yeah. And my younger relatives, children, grandchildren, uh, their attitude is very often, "Oh, I, it won't be there for me. I better save for myself. It's not going to be there. There, you know, it's it's going to be broke." So, I pity the you know the discussion has to start not in the House of Representatives and the Senate. I mean, it has to start. In the places where Bill Arnone hangs out, you know, and kind of uh, inst- think tanks and institutes to to come up with something plausible. Because as you say, you know, you're, what are what can you do? You pay out less, or, or you take in more. So you either you raise raise the ceiling, which might I think that's probably among the more palatable options, or or you raise the retirement age or lower benefits. And uh, you know, there, the 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 discussion can get going among. I'm just going to say the elites, you know, people, but, but at the political level, I, I, I think it's radioactive. I don't think for the next five or 10 years, anything could, could be done. It might be the usual thing where, you know, it's when you, you fall off the cliff, when I don't know what bankruptcy means in the context of social security, but when you, when the trust fund, you know, <laughs> runs out of money, then maybe everyone will throw their hands in the air and say, well, okay, now. And by then, now, it'd be probably, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have to yeah, do something. Yeah. That's the way we normally solve problems anyway. So, yeah. you know, if I had to guess, I'd say that's right. And, and by the way, just to go back to Bill Mulligan, there are some things in history that are still relevant. The last time Social Security was close to going uh, uh, to uh, trust fund insolvency was 1983. And uh, how did we respond? Uh, Congress, the Reagan administration, and the Senate realized this is a political hot potato. Let's punt it to a commission. So we formed something called the Greenspan Commission. I cut my teeth on Social Security by sitting in on all the Greenspan Commission's deliberations. That's how I got started in this business. And they came up with a plan. It went to uh, the uh, Congress and the 83 amendments. And those amendments uh, did some major changes to Social Security. Uh, and uh, they didn't cause a political revolution, including raising the retirement age. The way they did it, uh, nobody knew their age was raised until it hit them. Uh, so they kind of said, you know, that worked. We uh, uh, made younger workers pay a price, and they didn't even know it at the time. So uh, there's appetite now to form another commission that would address the overall federal debt, and it would include Social Security and Medicare and its deliberations. A lot of people are opposed to that. Uh, but 
Uh, I do want to correct one other thing. The often quoted third rail comment was Tip O'Neill's, but it's gotten misinterpreted. Tip O'Neill said cutting Social Security is the third rail. Not he didn't disgusting. say talking about it. And uh, you know, therein lies the significant wisdom. If you talk about it, you got to talk about ways to improve it from revenue increases and not from uh, benefit cuts. You're not going to get away with this this easily, Bill, because that that John before he didn't just toss the ball into your court. He he fired it in with a cannon. How do organizations like don't don't John please they, allow me my allow me my uh, my my floridness Sorry, over here a little, a little hyperbole. Of course, of course, of course, of course. But but quite seriously. How do organizations like yours, how do we, how do we, how does what you're doing and what is it you're doing, how does that ultimately today, how can that affect the changes that we need? And there's about I three different, a, a different areas. I have a very specific answer we are doing. We did it once before us before. There are two E words that you never want to be the subject of. Elite is one mm. and expert is the other. <laughs> Those are fighting words in this country, right? I think oh, yeah, I must have used at least one of them in introducing you. Or that, yeah. <laughs> right. but, uh, we are going to be asking the American people, as we did in 2012 and 2014, to solve for Social Security's financial challenges. We're using something called conjoint analysis. I'm sorry, uh, uh, John and Bill, you're familiar with that? We're going to survey uh, a representative sample of American people, and we're going to force them to come up with a package that solves for Social Security's 75-year financing challenge. Last time we did this, believe it or not, the respondents, and we sliced and diced the data by age, income, political affiliation, uh, you name it. Uh, they said we are willing to pay more ourselves through a higher contribution rate in order to help solve the problem. So we're asking the American people to step forward again in this political year, come up with the American people's plan, and let's see uh, how other elected officials respond to it, because it has been historically a very balanced approach. In that sense, the people are ahead of the elites. Well, wait, who, the, who creates the questions that, that we are do. asked? The academy does. The academy, uh, we, oh, okay. Yep, and, and we have to be careful because... Um, you know, in this business, I'll never forget, we presented the findings at a uh, conference and a reporter from the Wall Street Journal got up and said, I don't believe your results. <laughs> and why? Because they didn't uh, uh, conform to his opinion. Uh, but well, we're very careful with the methodology we use. It's reviewed. We have a, a group that makes sure we don't rig it in any way. But uh, we're very excited about this. So this is going to be launched this year. We'll be issuing the results in the middle of the campaign. So we want the American people to weigh in on what they think should be done. Wow. I think that's an excellent approach. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And it's, it combines something, you know, what John suggested. If there's a comprehensive plan that has some objectivity, that's not a politician presenting it, then his opponent or her opponent is going to react. But if there's a comprehensive plan that actually offers a realistic solution where the, the obviously there's going to be some costs to solving the problem. But if those costs are distributed in what seems like a reasonable way, I think I think you could have you could have some progress. Well because I, I think no one wants no, I well I understand the average person doesn't want it to go away. I think the average person wants social security to continue. 
I think yeah. basically, I think basically, we're we're at a point where we also need to start getting a concrete sense of what some of these questions might be, or maybe understanding how the last survey went. But I, I'm I'm hearing the idea of hey, let's have a survey, and the American people will come back, and we'll have all the. That sounds good, but what would sound better would be what are the types of things that we're actually asking Americans and what are the challenges that they have to confront in saying, well, yeah, I would actually want to, are they giving something up? Are they being offered something more? I think that's kind of what we have to touch, but I'd like to do that as we typically do in these forums after a little, a very short hiatus, uh, which is peppered with a little jazz.
And we're back. Um, our forum participants, our forum members today, are Bill Mulligan, uh, Bill Arnone. We thought we'd balance that out with the names. And of course, John Cugini in the middle, just sort of the fulcrum that the whole thing rests on over here. My name is Richard Gazer. We were talking a few moments ago before we went to break about what exactly do Americans confronted, well, offered uh, the survey that Bill Arnone was talking about that the National Academy of Social Insurance is currently working on. What are the, what are the nuts and bolts of that? How does that work? A little more detail there if we can. Well, in, a, in essence, it's two categories of solutions, and they're not mutually exclusive. They need to work in tandem. One is increased revenues, and the other is adjust benefits. And everyone believes the long-term solution needs to be a combination of both. Now, last time, when the 83 Greenspan weighed in, they started with a 50-50 rule. For every benefit reduction, uh, there'll be a... Uh, increase in revenues. That was the political compromise. The fact is, they ended up with a 70-30 plan, 70% benefit reductions and 30% revenue increases. They, they didn't quite uh, adhere to their um, guiding principles. But that's basically what um, the survey will look at. Here's a category in, of uh, benefit uh, uh, changes. Uh, here's a category of revenue uh, uh, increases. And whatever you pick has to add up to 100% solving the trust fund's uh, dilemma. So there's a bottom line. You're aware of the bottom line as yeah, you're as working you through this. So yeah. what, every time you say, I like this option, it'll tell you it either increases the trust funds by X percent or decreases them by Y percent. And then you finish the survey only if you get to at least 100%. You are talking about then a, a, an intelligent automated survey. In other words, Straight so off analysis. Yeah. It, 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 it's as, as you hit a, this number, up, it's affecting that, and it all exactly. goes to the bottom line. They uh, might say, uh, well, who makes up these numbers? Okay, okay. Social Security actuaries, they have a whole list on their website of every proposal that's been made over the last X years, and they quantify its impact on the trust fund's financial condition. Yeah. And so it's done with rigor, uh, actuarial rigor, and we'll just uh, translate that in ways that the American people can make meaningful decisions. Okay. How, how much, how much preview? Ways, I'm sorry, go ahead, Bill. Bill uh, in many ways, the problem is very predictable. Actuaries can, can work it out you know, with some leeway, but what we know pretty much life expectancy. We know what the current pattern of payouts. We know the current revenue stream. We know that fewer people are going to be entering the workforce. Um, you know, we know we know all of the variables, I think, or most of the variables, or enough of them. But, well, I'll tell you, uh, here's a variable we didn't know, and everyone thought it was going to create havoc, and that was a pandemic, right? Yeah. The actuaries never factored in a pandemic. And when it first started, the, everybody was saying the sky's going to fall on Social Security. People are going to be out of jobs. Their wages are going to go down. The revenues are going to be uh, coming in at much lower levels. Well, uh, the other thing happened is more, and I hate to put it this way, wow. more, more higher-cost beneficiaries died. Huh? I wow. mean, let's face yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. The, what is the Rumsfeld uh, famous statement? It's not the known unknowns. It's the <laughs> unknown unknowns. There were, there were several yeah, yeah, statements yeah. built into that statement, as I recall. Yeah. 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 So wow. but yeah, uh, we, we know the, the existing variables. There's always the what is it called? The black swan. 
that comes out of nowhere, and those are not factored in. But from 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 the perspective of of, of NASI, you guys, okay, you're the experts at putting all this together. You're the experts at at knowing what to ask of what particular group. Does this seem like an exercise that can realistically result in something that A, Americans would accept across the board, and B, that could actually get implemented? Now, you're watching it, and I take it it's still in the developmental stages right now. Okay. But is it going in that direction? Do you believe that this could actually work? Oh, yes. We wouldn't do it if we thought it was just pie in the sky. Uh, we try. And by the way, we're nonpartisan. Oh, you might say, come on, Arno, you're a kid. And look at your political history. It's a big <laughs> D written all over it. Yeah, well, well, I am not the Academy. The Academy itself is a very diverse board of directors, a diverse membership. Uh, so we play it straight. And uh, that's why it has credibility. And yes, I think it could provide um, ammunition for legislators to say, you know, we can do this. The American people are telling us they support it. So I think it does have the potential for a significant impact. John, I cut I, you off. I'm oh, sorry, Bill. Yeah, I cut you off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would second that hard because it's going to be coming from a neutral source. It's not going to be the Democratic plank in the platform or Republican plank in a platform or a particular political candidate. It's a neutral group. It probably will downplay its expertise. <laughs> not too expert. But, you know, a, a, a neutral group has looked at the problem, broadly surveyed the American people. So neither political party would have it, have skin in the game that they would win, except they might have a benefit if they got behind a plan that saved Social Security for another generation. I mean, that's going to be very, very popular politically, I think, uh, if people can, be, can come to accept the fact that it has to change. It cannot. One thing we can be certain of. It cannot continue without some change much longer. Um, and I think once you know, a neutral group providing a comprehensive plan um, that's well thought out, I think has, has a better chance, has probably the best chance of success uh, than anything that was appeared to be too political. I, I, I almost feel cautiously optimistic hearing what I'm hearing right now. Uh, is, is, there, is there a reason to feel optimistic about all of those other programs that are included in the entire umbrella of social insurance? Uh, I, no. <laughs> there is no. a head wagging happening. <laughs> you know, nothing is easy, but relatively speaking, Medicare is a whole different problem because it's embedded in their health care. I can't call it a health care system. It's a healthcare patchwork, and uh, solving Medicare is going to take a whole different effort. Unemployment insurance also, um, a lot of uh, questions there because it's state by state, and workers' compensation, the same thing. So when you look at Social Security compared to other social insurance programs, I won't say it's easy, but it's more manageable than the problems facing the other well, with, with, with Medicare being as, as big an issue for the older population, maybe we should spend a little time talking about why and how it is so much different and, and so much more intractable. I think you're suggesting than perhaps social insurances. What are the key problems with Medicare right now? Our health care uh, uh, approach is uh, laden with waste. Uh, the last estimate we saw, 30% of all health care expenditures in this country can be classified as wasteful. The problem is what is waste to us is income to others. Um, 
it's a, a system. I can't really call it a system. Uh, if, if you've all experienced uh, a healthcare uh, situation, we all have, right? Uh, I don't know anybody who can go back and say, "Hey, it worked well for me." Um, so we, it's a it's a problem that is beyond just Medicare. It's the entire approach we have to healthcare in our country. I, I, I spent 14 years working in the Blue Cross system um, in huh? communications, and as I recall it, uh, basically there was one rule, and the rule was, he who has the deepest pockets shall pay, and that kept, in my time, went from initially being the employers, then it went to doctors, then it went... Uh, eventually it found its way into the individual insured wound up with the most of the problem there. But there was never any control over the actual administration, the healthcare administration. The healthcare finance aspect of it has never gotten under control. We are still watching increases in the, in the uh, MCPI, or it keep, just keeps ticking up and ticking up, the rate keeps going. And I, I, I've been out of the health insurance industry for a while now, very happily, and I still can't, for the life of me, figure out why we can't decide, well, this particular CAT scan machine would be superfluous. We shouldn't grant you a right. Oh, no, no, I, I have a right to get that extra CAT scan machine, or, and on and on. Now I'll add my rates up that much higher, and we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, and it's... It's insanity, well, Bill. We, we certainly can't brag about the outcomes of our healthcare no, system. No, no, and that's the other thing, they of are, course, are, for all the expenditures. Yeah. Our life expectancy for Americans is middling in, in developing nations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maternal issue, maternal uh, mortality, uh, we're, we're, we're way down the list. In fact, I live not far from Memphis. Memphis, Memphis has a higher infant mortality rate than, I think, countries in Africa. Mm. Uh, and... Um, so we're not getting the results. And then, because living in rural America, we've had hospitals close here in the last five years. Um, and people have to drive several hours. And then some of the hospitals here don't really have, um, you know, they're really not hospitals. They're more like, I don't know what, but you can't, they're not full service. You have to go two hours to get, you know, proper treatment or, or in some cases. Like I have... Well, I've been diagnosed with early stage prostate cancer. And at some point I may have to go to Nashville two hours away because they don't have the equipment here for yeah. one of the procedures I might need if things develop in a certain way. Yeah. Well, okay. I have the means I can get to Nashville in two hours, <laughs> Yeah. but yeah. not yeah. everybody yeah. can. Bill, you know, so it's, Bill Arnone, it's is, is, does the, does, does an organization like, no, does Medicare, let me try it this way. Does Medicare have the, the means to influence the healthcare and financial system and the actual, that's the money side, and the delivery of healthcare, given how large a player it is, is part of the solution basically, or is the bigger solution, is the biggest part of the solution affecting both the systemic uh, processes of healthcare delivery and healthcare financing? And can Medicare actually be a major, a major force in doing both? Without any question, Medicare uh, has significant influence in the practice of medicine. Uh, fee uh, for service was a Medicare-developed concept. They set the fees, then they would develop a new methodology to adjust the fees. The private sector would normally follow right along. 
Um, so, yes, it is a player, but it alone can't address the, the systemic issues that are affecting the provision of uh, health care in our country. So it's uh, both a player, but also a uh, recipient of the uh, given structure of health care in the United States. Uh, <clears throat> there's an odd thing going on now in our economy. John, you may have a take on this, too. How much of venture capital is flowing into hospitals and nursing homes in the United States? They must see something, right? Um, and um, no one has been able to figure out what is causing this influx of venture capital into certain elements of our healthcare system. I don't know if you have a perspective on that, John. No, I I assume they go for return after investment, and I I would think that for-profit hospitals, um, you know, put out put out a statement, and you, we could look at what their profit margins are. I, I mean, I I have I know nothing about the the economics of it, but I mean, you could, you know, if a hospital's making, you know, 30% on investment a year versus 5%, whatever the, the ratios would be, that would, that would attract, uh, that would attract capital. But uh, when, when you get down in the weeds, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, I don't. Well, it's an aging population and presumably there's going to be more demand yeah. in nursing homes and, and, and healthcare. Yeah. Most us. Most of our most medical expenses occur, you know, towards the end of life and nursing home costs. So they clearly see it. Obviously, they're not investing it if they don't think they can make money. Of course, yeah. But it may be, you know, obviously um, they're willing to take some risks or to wait a while. It may be more how long are they going to have to wait um, before the return? That might be a, a, a lobbying group to increase Medicare benefits. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to say one, one of the attractive parts of such an investment would be you've got a revenue stream that's supported by the government. That the government, not not all of the nursing home costs, but of course a, a lot of it. You know, when all else fails, you go to SSI or, or whatever the Social Security program is, and you know that's always comforting to have the you know the government writing the check directly to you while you know Granny Granny stays in the in the hospital. Um, uh, uh, but who knows? Again, you know, venture capital is out buying up private housing because they think they could make money by, by renting it out. And, you know, they're smart guys that, that do the analysis. And like Bill says, they're, they're doing it to make money. They're doing, you know, that's the efficient use of capital, one hopes, and that's what capitalism is supposed to do. So whereas with, whereas with with Social Security, this is something that where the rules and the money and everything can be all handled from one location. The government can do it all. With Medicare, there are so many other moving parts. The system right. has all these moving parts, the money, the, the practices, the everything that goes with it, that even if Medicare qua Medicare were basically to do something reasonable, mm -hmm. it would have no real impact unless, unless the whole system came along with it? Is that, is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, well, well, Medicare can't control what doc, I mean, doctors, I believe, have the option. They, they, do you want to accept Medicare? And a doctor That's saying, right. yeah, I'm willing, That's to, right. I'm willing yeah. to accept what you're offering. No, I'm not. You're not paying me enough. Go, go somewhere else. And, you know, so you, you get this, you know, tiered system. And, you know, so, so not surprisingly, rich people get medical care because they can afford nicer places. They can, you know, afford nicer toys. That's, that's again, that's kind of the way, way things goes. But Social Security really is 
quite unique because it's got this dedicated revenue stream. So it's one in, yeah. one out. Yeah. And yeah. the benefits are money. You know, you're not arguing with anyone over the price. You're just saying, here's your $28,000 a year or whatever. So as, as Bill was saying, in some ways, it's a much simpler problem to analyze because it doesn't yeah. have all these yeah. external externalities with, you know, eight, eight other players. Yeah. Uh, so it's in that, in that sense only, it's an, it's an easier problem. Um, uh, but I'd be, uh, but, but Bill, may, could you just, I mean, do you feel, I haven't read up on this, is Medicare in, would you say, more or less trouble uh, financially than, than Social Security? Did more, you? more. Uh, more? Okay. Medi Medicare has its own trust fund. Its depletion yes. date is sooner. But it also has a, a Part B where it's financed by premiums. Those premiums are heavily subsidized by general revenues. For every... Uh, uh, $1 you put in, the federal government puts in three. So wow. that's having a tremendous impact on the federal budget, mm -hmm. whereas Social Security is not currently having an impact on the federal yeah. budget. There's also another big health care program that we don't talk about as much, and that's Medicaid, yeah. which is for yeah. the poor. There are more people on Medicaid today than are on Medicare. Unheard of. You might say, why? The Affordable Care Act. It used Medicaid to That's provide right. insurance to people who normally would not be poor enough to be on Medicaid. So it's really a, a complex system. Going back to the point Bill Mulligan made, when you look at what it costs us and what we get in return, it is among the worst in civil among civilized countries. OECD ranks us, I think, out of 36 countries, we're 34th in what we get for what we pay. Uh, it's really not a not a pleasant picture. Is a single payer for the whole country a solution? Depends on how you go about it. You don't hear many people talking these days about Medicare for all. Remember all the buzz yeah, about that? Yeah. Bernie Sanders back. ran yeah. on it. But you don't hear anyone talking about that. Um, so Should they be? Payer? You know, I think uh, everything should be on the table because the, the system is just not working. Uh, however, you look at the UK, Britain has a nationalized healthcare system, and that is in uh, dire straits right now. Uh, healthcare has not proven to be something any country uh, has been able to solve. Although, I, people I know who study Singapore say, you want a model? The model is Singapore. But I have not myself looked into Singapore to know what makes it a model. Two of my nieces are Singaporean. I sh I, I'll check with them and yes, see how their yeah. system goes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was I was impressed with the German system. I spent two semesters in Germany, and it, it seems to work fairly well. In fact, I, I think some of you have heard this. I, I actually got sick the second time I was there and had to go to a doctor. And in in time, I got a bill for 106 euro and 38 cents. Wow! Oh, gosh. Uh, wow. <laughs> and I went to the. I didn't have a German checking account. I just had a you know ATM card in use my American bank account. So I went to the office. At one point, there were six people standing around looking at the bill, trying to figure out how to take money. <laughs> <laughs> because everything just goes to the central office. And one of my Irish friends, his mother was a, is German. In fact, her family fled the Nazis. And she had a, a brain tumor, and it was going to be six months wait in Ireland, which is not a model of how to do national health care because she was a german she had german citizenship everything was covered she just had to fly to germany and she wow. was you know it was included now 
how much that would cost for a country the size of the United States, you know, maybe a larger number than anyone would countenance. But we, this is an area, I think, where we hurt ourselves by not looking at what other countries are doing. I agree with you. And by the way, acute care is one thing. We don't do that well. We really don't do long-term care well at all. That's the one that our generation is going to need more long-term care than previous generations. And right now, uh, that's in total disarray. Bill, is there a way to could, – could, could, could NASI do a survey akin to what it's doing with Social Security – could, could, could you approach this problem in that way and perhaps compel players that would otherwise be reticent to do the right thing to at least start moving in the right direction based on the input of the American people? I don't think Medicare is susceptible to that approach okay. because of its, of its complexity. I hate not to accept the challenge, but right now <laughs> yeah. we have no plans yeah. to try this with Medicare. Then I'm hearing no solutions. I'm hearing silence. <laughs> yeah, muddle, muddle through, muddle through well, the well that, but, but that means that basically then that means we're waiting for the other shoe to fall. Well, I think this Medicare and Medicaid are, are, are separate issues. And I think there's a lot more support for Medicare than there is. Medicaid seems to be the stepchild of the system, to use a politically incorrect term. I mean, even here, here right, you go into the very hospital, you know, rural America. Um, everywhere you go, there's a big sign. Murray Calloway County Hospital does not accept out-of-state Medicaid. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. really? Yeah. But, but, but what happens we're, when, yeah, we're nine miles from the Tennessee border. <laughs> what happens when? What happens when one of the Medicare or Medicaid, the other Medicare or Medicaid shoe, drops? What happens? And it, I don't. Since we don't have a reason or an ability or any plan or the beginnings of a plan to stop the droppage. It's going to drop, and then what? Can can we even imagine that situation? Well, I think it's hard to think of it outside. The whole system is so broken um, that you know Medicare um, is not the problem. It's, not, it's it's in many ways it's a model of how we might solve it at some point because at least there's some minimum guarantee. I don't know about you know we the Kentucky ret teachers retirement system actually we have a supplement. So, I mean, I actually have better insurance now than I had when I was working wow. uh, between wow. Medicare and wow. the supplement. Wow. Uh, my drugs are a lot less. Everything's a lot less out of pocket. So that's a model. But when you have, you know, how much does the president of Anthem Healthcare make? The president makes multiple millions of dollars a I year. I happen to know him, and, and, and he, no, but, but <laughs> he makes a lot. Those, they're they're going to fight tooth and nail. Anything that threatens yeah. the, their their role in, in any system, and you know, even the Obamacare, when you really get down to it, as I see it, the basic plan is a subsidy for the private health insurance companies. I mean, they basically bought them off. We'll subsidize your your fees for these people who meet certain income criteria. Mm -hmm. And one thing Medicare has done dramatically is to talk about means testing. Its premiums are now income-related. And for a lot of people, uh, Medicare is not proven to be a good deal. They could do better uh, in the private sector because of this introduction of income-related premiums. 
So that has been a very questionable change in how Medicare is financed. Hmm. Could, could you, well, could you, I would say income related premium. I know with Medicare, I think you pay about like a flat 2%. So it's certainly relative to income because it's 2%. It's not a flat number. Would yeah, no, that's part, part A. That? Yeah, yeah, part A is financed through what you contribute while you're working. When yeah. you retire and you go on Medicare, you got to pay what are called Part B premiums, and those are now income-related based on oh, your Oh, really? And, yeah. and okay. in yeah. some cases, the additional premium is uh, huge. Um, so that's been uh, a Medicare experiment that little by little it's causing some resentment among higher-income people saying yeah. – I have to do this. I have no choice, but this is not a good deal for me. So it's it, it kind of is a wave of caution. How far can you go with a means-tested approach in a social insurance program? Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just sort of, again, anecdotally, uh, I work for the federal government, and uh, when you, or you retire, you kind of have a choice whether to go to Part B or just keep your federal insurance and pay the full freight. The government at that right. point doesn't contribute. And I looked at it and I just kept the the, the federal employees insurance as opposed yeah. to Medicare Part B. Program, um, yeah. You know, like yeah. say it seemed over, you know, could argue either way, but overall I thought it was yeah. a better deal. And more people, and it's Blue Cross Blue Shield, which, you know, so to speak, everyone takes as, as opposed to Part B. We started out with uh, President Bush. You got to give him credit. He presided over a huge expansion of Medicare yeah. by introducing Medicare Part D, Part D yeah. which yes. is the drug program. This right. was under a conservative. Yeah. Well, it's actually doing much better than Part B. Really? Really? Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yep. So Bill, are, are, are we doing any, are any, are, is, is unemployment or paid family leave or any of the other programs doing any better than what we've discussed so far? Well, it uh, depends on the measures you use. As I said earlier, the problem in unemployment insurance, even though it was created by the same act that created Social Security, uh, Roosevelt decided, you know, the federal government can do just so much. Let the federal government run a uniform Social Security program. Let the states run an unemployment insurance program with pretty much a hands-off attitude by the federal government. The result? Wide disparities in how many weeks of benefits you can get, how the formula works. Um, some states, they actually pride themselves on not having people on their unemployment insurance rolls. Um, the technology um, for those programs, I never thought I'd hear the word COBOL used. Uh, today, right? <laughs> states are, states are still doing it. Oh, no, you know, yeah. That, that came up during the, the pandemic. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. like. Six people in the in the country that still can do COBOL. I mean, some, some ridiculous- John, John, are you number seven? <laughs> no, I mean, there's some, ridic- some ridiculously small number of people who... And yet the I, I, whole unemployment system is based on this uh, antiquated... I, I mean... I used to teach in, when I worked for the Army. I taught COBOL classes. Wow. So I, I know of COBOL. You may be more I mean, valuable really than you realize, John. Pull out those old textbooks, You can have a buddy. whole new career if you want. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> COBOL troubleshooter for hire. <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it, was a, it was sort of an ascending high. It was, it was, it was it, you know, Rayform Williams' lark ascending, I was hearing in the background as we were discussing Social Security <laughs> in the beginning. But it's been kind of... <laughs> you know, victory and see the bad parts problems. afterwards since there. Yeah. Um, some, of, some of these issues are complicated by our federal system. Yeah, which, yeah, as, sure. As, yeah. as Bill said, you know, 
unemployment insurance is left to the states. Aid to families with dependent children, mm -hmm. or whatever they're calling it now, I mean, Rick's is left to the yeah. states. And some mm -hmm. states basically give people enough money to starve on. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we, we don't, we are reluctant to have big national programs um, mm -hmm. for base things. And that's, yeah, we could look at other countries, but our history is somewhat different than, you know, I think Germany, I think it was Bismarck who introduced uh, pensions in Germany. It's really. 89, and he was the one who set the age of 65 because no one lived to 65. But wow. he was Very hard, clever wow. politician. Wow. But he was hardly a flaming liberal. I know. I know. Well, it, 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 are any of these other issues, I and mean, let's, let's, let's leave Social Security out there for a moment, are any of these other programs uh, defined or is our thoughts about solving them defined politically? Is there a Republican, Trumpian, uh, MAGA mm. approach on one hand and the Democratic, liberal uh, approach on another? Or are they just, just so out there on their own that it even defies politics as we currently well, know it? Well, let me, let me, well, let me ask, if, as the, the crew, Bill, and everyone else, if, if we think the commission is uh, the commission route is a, is a good way to go for Social Security, and seems like it might be, yeah. why would it not also work for Medicare? Get the experts together to present, here's, you know, what we regard as a balanced approach, and if you want to save Medicare, this is... Bill's you know, answer to that, Bill Arnone's answer to that was, done. well, it really is. doesn't work the same way. Now, you know, no, no, uh, that is what's being proposed, a federal debt and deficit commission that will look at all federal programs and look at them in relation to the federal debt, which is at the highest percentage of yeah. gross domestic product. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what this commission will do. Unlike the Greenspan Commission, which was just focused on Social Security, this one's going to look at all federal spending. Wait, yeah. is this commission being developed? Does it exist? What are, what, are you, what are you saying? There's legislation to create it. It hasn't worked its way through Congress yet. The um, uh, there's big divisions, uh, political divisions. Okay, so one, it, it is facing political differentiation. Okay, yeah. as it goes forward, uh, the White House has not weighed in oddly enough on it. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. The but Biden did call the commission a death panel, which I thought was a very interesting term. Um, so to me, it is. Uh, it, I don't know if it's going to... What's the name? What, was, what is the proposed name of the commission again? I just want to mention... On the Federal Debt and Deficit Commission. Federal Debt and Deficit Commission. That's one to keep an eye on, I would say. Um, but it may uh, be the only way to solve the problems. Because yeah. if you know, any Medicare it may seem like a huge problem on itself, but in proportion to the whole federal budget, it's, you know, it's not very significant. I mean, it's significant, but it's not... You know, we spend more money on a lot, you know, we spend lots of money on lots of things. And, and our revenue, you know, all the tax cuts we've had in the last uh, 40 years, um, it'd be interesting to see how that's affected. Um, although revenue does, you know, I mean, I, but the thing that's worrisome is the debt has always been a manageable percentage of the gross d domestic product. Yeah. Or, or what was perceived by most economists, yeah. by most economists yeah, thought it was yeah. reasonable. But in the last six or seven years, it's 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 gotten to a point where it's, I think more people are worried about it now than are comfortable with it, which is a sort of a reversal. Yeah, yeah. and as I'm, I'm sure you all, all know, the maybe for the benefit of our audience, in, interest payments now take more money than defense and pro probably than Medicare. I'm, I'm not sure how the mm. uh, how, how the magnitude of those compare. 
but interest is starting to be the single biggest chunk of the budget. And just just back to back to uh, Bill Mulligan's point a second ago, you, you know, yes, Medicare and, and all that may be, be maybe a very, very small percentage comparatively of the overall federal budget, but they have a disproportionately high impact on the lives of the individuals who depend on those programs. So so the fact that there may be, you know, just in pure numbers, a small amount doesn't really reveal what the problem is and how the problem affects everybody. And that's kind of what we've been trying to talk about over here. We haven't solved anything. Well, okay, maybe Social Security is on the path to a solution. Maybe this larger commission uh, studying all of these programs, if it can get its political legs on all sides, might be a direction, uh, it might be taking us all in a direction that will solve things, but I, I think people have to pay a hell of a lot more attention to what's going on here. I'm, I'm learning tons of stuff that I <laughs> quite frankly didn't know and quite honestly think I should have known about what is going on with these different social insurance programs. Bill, last word on this. How should Americans be acting? How sh can Americans become more involved in this process? Or do I wait till I get an NASI, NASI survey uh, to me on Social Security and maybe whatever else comes from the government? What, what do Americans do to make this thing happen quicker and better? Yeah, well, this is a national election year. Every member of the House is up for uh, election, uh, one-third of the Senate and the White House. You go to these campaign events, and you should be asking this question. What is your plan on Social Security? And don't take the rhetoric, which is, I want to preserve and strengthen it. No, that's not acceptable. Yeah. What do you want to do on the revenue side? And what do you want to do on the benefit side? And then, Rich, to go back to the focus on all this, we're talking about it at a high policy walk level. People's lives are affected. Yeah. And I know John had yeah. raised the issue of poverty. Yeah. When we declared war on poverty in the mid-60s, here we are, how many years later, the number of poor Americans has not changed. It was 40 million plus then, it's 40 million plus now. Now, there's a definitional issue of poverty, yeah, right. and that's a serious <laughs> issue, right? Yeah. But remember Reagan's famous quote? We declared war on poverty, and poverty won. And you got to look at the numbers, and it's a, it's a very, very troubling picture. Well, uh, this is, if I don't want to say if nothing else. It's been quite something. It's been a learning experience, and it's been, uh, I, I think the first... The first thing you have to do is at least look at the problem. If not, get your arm, maybe getting your arms around it is the next issue for the average person listening to this show right now who's not with a Bill Arnone or a John Cugini knowledge of the whole thing or a, or a Bill Mulligan larger perspective. But at least it's getting a sense of what the problem is. And I think the most important aspect of all is that this is this conversation is being is taking place in a in a uh, election year and yes exactly as bill arnone was saying for the love of god get out there and 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 pound your politicians uh, for a solution and maybe it's the first time they'll be thinking about it but they'll but they'll have to do something about it if enough people do it thank you gentlemen for all of this uh i i want to thank bill arnone i want to thank john cugini i want to thank bill mulligan 
and uh, I want to thank all of you for listening. Um, there is much to chew on, much more to, uh, to go. This is obviously a first foray here. Uh, I would be very interested in having another one of these uh, events, another one of these forums, once the questionnaire on Social Security has gone out and some of these results begin to start filtering in. I don't know how much at Liberty, Bill, you would be or anyone within the, the academy to begin giving us any perspective on that. But once you can, that is absolutely something that I would want to share with our listeners. Thank you guys so much for being part of this. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to a Noble Hearts Forum on social insurance. Uh, and my name is Richard Gazer. Thank you for being part of this. And as we always do with all of our shows, Noble Hearts Forum, or what we typically call our center-left radio shows as well, this is the point at which you kind of sit back, take off your shoes, think about it, chew on it ever so lightly, Maybe have a little something to wash it down, but whatever you're going to do, do it with a little more jazz. listening to a special Noble Hearts Forum on America's social insurance programs, brought to you by Centerleft Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer. Thank you for being part of our show. <laughs>